Okay, here's what I want you to do. Now, if you haven't seen an actual coronation, maybe you've seen one on TV, or um, maybe you've witnessed something that's kind of a fake one of those on some movie or TV show, all right? What was, uh, what stood out to you about the coronation of a king or queen? What would you say is the best thing about being king or queen, okay? Talk about that around your table, and we'll get back together in just a minute. Okay. What is remarkable to you about the last coronation, real or not real? Uh, you know, we, we saw one just, what, a month ago or less? Uh, the largest coronation in our lifetimes, probably, um, uh, uh, with... Uh, uh, are they still doing that? Uh, it takes a while, doesn't it? But um, what, what's remarkable? What stands out to you about a coronation? They, they just come out by the millions to watch for a, a pin spot out here that you can't really see. Yeah, you're right. The reverence right. of tradition, which we have lost in our society. The reverence of tradition. Yeah, the reverence of... Everything that, has to be new and improved, and that does not mean any more than it's any better. Yeah, it's funny that they do rewind the clock several centuries to do this thing. I read about uh, a Scottish gentleman whose great-great-great-great-grandfather had, had something to do with the sword, and uh, his, he had been chosen to be there to present the sword or something. I'm thinking, wow, this, I mean, that kind of tradition is really... Neat. It's pretty cool. All right. Anybody else? What What uh, is remarkable to you about coronations in general? How much it costs. It costs a bunch of money. You know, Dan, you know I'm a car guy. And uh, so when I see this coach come up and I realize that that's not, uh, that's not uh, Krylon gold spray paint on there, uh, I think, wow, you know, among other things. Okay. Well, we're going to talk in this series about the reign of the real king. Amen. Okay? The reign of the king of the universe. Now, let me, let me set the stage for us a little bit, if you don't mind to kind of stick with me for a minute. Monarchies that we've been talking about here, complete with kings and queens and kingdoms, uh, feel like relics of a bygone era, most, mostly. Um, there are some absolute monarchies of a king or queen uh, having control over a kingdom in some places that you and I don't normally see. Um, um, they're rare, but there's still a few of those that exist. But mostly, what you and I see, as, as is the one that we talked about from a month or so ago, what we mostly see is what might be known as a ceremonial head of state, a, a figurehead in that way, or a constitutional monarchy. Uh, one where there's a constitution and a and uh, a parliament or somebody who really is in control, but there's this kind of ceremonial uh, kingdom involved too. Now, we have fascination with that because those people are kind of larger than life celebrities that we watch. But um, what you and I need to know is as we talk about kingdoms in the time of scripture, 
there were monarchs in power that were absolute in power in those days. So rewind the clock. Today we're going to be, oh, 700 or so BC. There were monarchs that were in power, absolute monarchs in power. Uh, their word and their will became the law of the land, often forcefully. Violence and brutality were frequently justified. If such acts like that maintained the status quo of the king or the queen. Uh, monarchs sometimes resorted to violence against their people to appease their own pagan gods. We read about that in places like Second Kings. Um, often, the monarch maintained their authority uh, most of the time by a powerful military. Those military forces were expensive. So where'd they get their money? They had to tax their subjects and they had to ask for tribute from vanquished other monarchies and conquered peoples. Uh, dishonest governance was sometimes excused if for no other reason than the end justified the means. The end being the total rule of the king or the queen. So, um, the nation of Israel, as you read about the monarchies in the nation of Israel, it's kind of mixed. Um, kings were called and replaced. Some of them were good, some of them not so much. If you read about the divided kingdom of Israel into north and south uh, in, in those historical books, you'll recognize that there are a few good kings in the southern kingdom. There are literally no good kings in the northern kingdom. Uh, if you read about the three kings over the United Kingdom of Israel, um, we, we always think about David during the height, the zenith of Israel's power, um, strength. We think of his son Solomon, but we also think negatively about Saul who started the whole thing and didn't do very well for very long. So um, throughout the history of the, uh, the Israelite people, uh, there are many kings uh, revealed that all, not all kings uh, desired to follow God. But, is, but the scriptures still teach that the ultimate king is the Lord himself. So we're going to talk in this series, this summer, about the righteous rule of God. I believe, and I believe the Bible teaches us, that God rules over all creation, heaven and earth. And that rule, this is beautiful, is totally and unequivocally good and righteous. There's no intrigue. There's no, um, there's no deviousness about God's rule. Um, he's not desperate to retain power because he's in power, always has been, always will be. Um, and all people then and now and all people groups in the world are invited to be a part of that kingdom about to come under as subjects of his reign. That's what we're going to talk about for the next little bit. Now, I'm going to give you a little more background about today because we're going to jump into Isaiah 52 in a minute. But I need at least three prophets in the room. Okay? John, if you will be, I'm going to ask you be the prophet uh, Jeremiah. Okay? We've got a couple of Jeremiah references we're going to go to. I'll help you find them in a minute. Um, and then I need the prophet Ezekiel, 
uh, another one of the major prophets. Who wants to? Sally, would you be the prophet Ezekiel? It, the Old Testament really doesn't have a problem with, with women in leadership. You know, okay, so, so Ezekiel, there's a couple of Ezekiel passages there. And I need a Daniel. Oh, that's perfect, Dan, for you to be Daniel. There, there's a couple of spots in Daniel we're going to go to. So if you see, if you see your prophet in there, uh, go to that. Now, Cindy, I'm going to ask you to be Nehemiah. Now, he wasn't a prophet, but he was a leader. And there's some Nehemiah passages we're going to look at in a minute, too. So that'll get us a little bit down the road. And, um, and I think we'll get there. So let me give you a little bit of little bit more background about Isaiah 52. Um, in the ancient world, heralds, okay? Uh, by the way, I used to have a, a dear friend that sang in my choir in eastern Kentucky, and his name was Harold Green. But his name was spelled this way, H-E-A-R-A-L-D, not H-A-R. That's an Anglo anglicized thing. Um, heralds uh, reported the decrees of the king they would sometimes come to town and tell news about war, peace, or uh, they might come into town saying, here's the latest that's going on in the kingdom. So when chapter 40 in Isaiah begins, it begins as a herald showing up in the city to say, let me tell you what's going on. And if you remember Isaiah 40, which is a watershed uh, chapter of scriptures. It begins with comfort, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. Uh, it's a great message that begins there. So, um, um, uh, the idea here is that um, uh, this section of Isaiah falls into, uh, there's five sections even in our chapter here. And um, the first four sections invite Israelites that are exiled, so he's going to talk to those who are exiled in Babylon to return home because Babylon's about to fall uh, to the Persians under Cyrus the Great. By the way, Cyrus the Great hasn't been born yet when he predicts that, and he calls him by name. That's incredible. By the way, Isaiah sometimes, uh, when you're reading the book of Isaiah, sometimes those who uh, don't believe uh, in Scripture quite the way we do will talk about Deutero-Isaiah. In other words, they think there are two Isaiahs, one that, that existed and preached in 700 B.C., and then another one that came along hundreds of years later that had all the detail and added that. You and I don't believe that. We believe that God told Isaiah about Cyrus the Great in Persia. Anyway, you kind of get that idea. Um, so the, the context of this chapter is the idea of a returning Jerusalem, uh, a rebuilt Jerusalem, who would welcome home her children after the, after the city had been destroyed by the Babyl Babylonians. We know that that actually happened. We have benefit of that hindsight. Now, Steve Blair, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to have you just read this whole section. So start, if you would, uh, verse 7, and read all the way down through 12, if you would, please. Isaiah 52, 7 through 12. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. 
when the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, ye ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord, that you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Okay, the word is used here, and it's used interchangeably all throughout uh, the book of Isaiah and some other places in Scripture too. Jerusalem and Zion are used interchangeably. You ever heard of a Zionist? That's kind of uh, has something to do with what what that particular group believes about the future of what's going to happen in uh, in Jerusalem. So, um, listen to sixty four ten. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. So um, the idea there is that Zion and Jerusalem are the same thing. So when you read one, you're, you're reading about the other. Okay? Uh, catch that as you read through it. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul quotes this first verse that, that, we, that Steve started with, verse 7, um, which I think is just beautiful poetry. If it were only poetry, it's beautiful poetry. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Um, Paul quotes that in Romans 10.15 when he's talking about the relationship between preaching, a preacher, and coming to faith. And he'll, say, he'll quote this here and say, how lovely on the mountain are, are the feet of him who brings good news. So when somebody, we prayed on the way up here today for the preacher today. Uh, you need to pray that every week. And occasionally you need to say, oh, would you take off your shoes? I want to see how pretty your feet are, okay? Not, I don't think that's what that means, but all right. But it is the idea in the context of what we talked about before. If someone has come miles to bring you good news. You might say, um, you might look down at their feet and say, you brought us good news. That's kind of the thought. Um, the message, though, is what's lovely here, not literally their ten toes. Okay? So if you're reading from the NIV, it's going to use two words also interchangeably. Good tidings, okay, and good news. Depends on what translation you're reading here. So if 52.7 begins with the bringing of good news, what's the good news? It's right at the end of the verse. The Lord's with you. Sorry? The Lord is with you. We're guard. It, it, at, the, at the very end of this passage, it tells us he's, he's with us. He's behind us. I, I'll, I'll deal with that in just a minute. But literally at the end of verse 7, the good news is your God, our God reigns. That's what this whole series that we're going to work on this summer will be about. Um, uh, it, it's this beautiful thing, and I put it in your outline. Those who believe that God reigns. 
live in hope of the time when evil disappears. Is there ever been more of a time in your life when you felt like you needed that than now? They felt it too, gang. Remember, they're in literal captivity a thousand miles away from home. And Isaiah says, there's coming a day when the news is going to be really, really, really good. What I want to say to you as you and I apply these, what, six verses. Can I have you hang on to this? Goodness will triumph. Because God is good, only good. Guys in back here, you're going to say he's good all the time. What I want to say is not only God is good all the time, all the time is good, but I want to say God is only good all the time. Goodness will triumph one of these days. Uh, even from 700 B.C. it's telling us that. Okay, look at verse 8. Now we're going we're gonna to need a minute to get through this. Can so, I'm, let me send somebody else. Mark, I'm going to pick on you because you're my friend. Numbers 14, 14. Will you find that one? Okay. Um, we'll, we'll need that one in a minute too. And we'll need Jeremiah 6, 17 and Ezekiel 3, 17 and 33, 7. So we'll get to that in just a second. So... It, in verse 8, it's going to talk about the prophets being uh, watchmen. Okay? It doesn't say the word prophet. It says the word watchmen. Uh, think of, okay, think of um, a watchman on the wall. There, was, there were watchmen on every side of the wall all the time in a, in a fortified city who would watch as far as they could see for trouble approaching. And they might say, hey, I see dust rising out there 10 miles from here. Somebody's on the way. We better get ready. Watchmen. Um, the book of Hebrews talks about watchmen on the wall. And they talk about, literally, our pastors now being watchmen on the wall. Well, the idea here is that, that, that um, uh, the prophets were like watchmen on the wall. Um, Numbers 14, 14. Can we read that one? And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them, in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now hang on to that, because we're going to deal with this, what it means face to face here. Now, Jeremiah was a watchman, as was Ezekiel. Let's read what they have to say. All right. Um, uh, Jeremiah 6, 17. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. I warn you. So most of what the prophets are doing, Isaiah included, is warning them, you better turn your way. And Jeremiah says, I warned you, but you didn't listen. Um, all right, let's see what Ezekiel has to say. Cindy, is that you? Oh, Sally, sorry. I knew it was one of our, our lady prophets. Um, Ezekiel 3.17 and then jump down to 33.7. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. Okay. The prophets bring warning, okay? That's most of what they do in the Old Testament. 33, 17, Sally. 
I'm sorry, 33.7. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. Okay. The prophets all through the Old Testament are bringing words of warning until now. The day is coming when the watchman on the wall will say, all is well. Don't you long for that day? <laughs> Don't you long for that day? Yes. It's coming. It's coming. It was coming for them in one way. It's coming for all of us in a different way. But, but isn't that just a wonderful thought? Wouldn't you love it if you would open, okay, I'm, I'm going to invoke something that's going to make you mad at me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you would open USA Today tomorrow and it would say, the headline, the big banner would say, all is well. It's not going to do that. Someday. But someday. Why? Because of his righteous reign. Now remember, God is not on the throne in heaven wringing his hands over what is being reported in the newspaper. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to keep telling you that because it's so true and it's so helpful to me these days. Now, now, so, Mark, I'm going to come back to you. Look at the last part of verse 8. Um, For they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. The, I did a little bit of word work here, and I don't know anything about Hebrew, but, but I have helps that help me get through Hebrew. Um, and um, literally, Mark, it, it, the same expression is in Numbers, um, what did I tell you, 1414? Read it again to us, will you? And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. So they will see with how it's translated in my Bible, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. What I want you to know is that the expression is that we will see face to face, eyeball to eyeball. Now that's talking about what happened in Luke 2 and Matthew 2. Particularly, yeah, we're going to kind of reference that a little bit. And it's also talking about what happens uh, when they come back from Babylon. But what you and I need to recognize is let's go forward 2,700 years from here and on and say, we will see him eyeball to eyeball, face to face. face, to face. Nothing better. Nothing better. Okay, now, now, um, Verse 9, what is described there, look at it real quick. Break forth, shout joyfully together. That actually happened. Put that in your outline, okay? Uh, by the way, if, I, if you missed what I was talking about verse 8, prophets who formally pronounced warning now celebrate. But verse 9, this actually happened. And here's where I'm going to go to our, our reporter, Nehemiah, our leader, Nehemiah. Uh, Cindy, I'm going to have you read from, from Nehemiah 12, verse 27, and then jump down and read verse 43. This is what happened when they came back, when the walls were rebuilt, when Ezra says, read the scriptures again, boys. 
Okay? Look what happened. It, as, uh, Nehemiah 12, 27, and 43. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Forty-three. Who are the Levites, by the way? They were the singers. They did everything except offer sacrifice, okay? Uh, and he said, you guys tune up, all right? Because you're coming back to celebrate, and they did. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Isn't that beautiful? This actually happened. What Isaiah's talking about, hundreds of years before, generations before, actually happens just like he predicted it will happen here in verse 9. Um, uh, by the way, I, if, you, if I had had Cindy read that whole section, uh, you're going to read about uh, they pulled two choirs of Levites together. One wasn't enough. So think of our choir if you're in the sanctuary today. Think of two groups that big, maybe larger each, and they're singing kind of against each other. They actually marched in and marched around the parapet from one side. It just covered the city. One another and just made this great entrance. But what you may have missed, if you haven't read this section, is there were lots of trumpet players there too. That kind of warmed my heart. Okay. All right. Now, now they, they mentioned all the, by the way, the, the instruments of David or what Cindy was reading about, all the harps and lyres and all those kind of things. Stringed instruments. Now, look at verse 10. It references God's arm. Describe God's arm. What do you think? Bear. Huh? Bear. Bear. It's bared here. He's going to bear his arm. All right? He's going to roll up his That's a good way to think about it. He's going to roll up his sleeves on your behalf, he says. Now, what is happening here is what and you can you know at your next barbecue you can you can uh, impress your friends this is an this word's hard to say anthropomorphism this is an anthropomorphism now John 4:24 Jesus says the words are in red he's talking to the woman at the well and he says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth so no he doesn't have literal arms doesn't have literal arms here. So it's kind of anthropomorphized here. Um, many times his arms being bared, him rolling up his sleeves, has to do with warfare, going to battle for you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Uh, that's just a, a grand thought. Uh, look over at, turn with me over to 5916. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. So the idea there is if God can't find anybody to go to battle, he'll go to battle for you. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, but it, it gets even better when we talk about God's arm. Um, those of you who've been with me in class will know 
that this is especially uh, beautiful to me. Back from the beginning of this section from chapter 40, verse 11. Listen to this. Listen to how his arm is used in 40.11. Like a shepherd, he'll tend his flock in his arm. He will carry his lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. You ever needed had a time in your life when you needed God to just hold you? He does that with his arms and he holds you close. No, God doesn't have arms. But at least Isaiah has this this beautiful concept that uh, when you most need it, he's going to roll up his sleeves, Ellie, and he's going to fight for you, and he's going to take care of you. Now, Steve already read verse 11 and 12, so we're going to jump ahead to this, but I I want you to catch this. This couldn't be more beautiful. Uh, Paul is going to quote this uh, 11th verse in 2 Corinthians uh, 6 17. Now, for um, uh, the only couple of people I can think of that will get this reference completely are Janet and Perry. Uh, I heard a lot of sermons when I was a kid about come out from among them and be separate. That's right here. And it's kind of quoted differently in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Herb, you would have heard some of that. Yeah. Um, um, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 17, come out from among them and be separate. So that's, this comes from over here, but Paul kind of, uh, he paraphrases a little bit what we're going to read. Look at, look at verse 11 from chapter 52. Depart, depart, go out from there. So that's what got carried over in Church of God preaching is come out from among them and be separate. Um, uh, so... Uh, what I'm going to tell you is that if, if we appropriately apply this, it's going to lead to appropriate worship in the days to come, in their day and in our day. Um, uh, come out, be separate. It's kind of the idea. Now, um, what you and I need to know, and this is what the prophet Daniel is going to help us with here, okay, is when uh, they were carried into captivity in Babylon, they took all the precious vessels from the temple, from the house of worship. They took all that gold and silver and bronze with them. And they used it in illicit ways. So one of the things that he's saying in verse 11 is, I want you to carry that stuff back with you. Now we'll talk about that in just a second. Dan, if you would please read Daniel 1, verse 2. I'm going to have you jump down and read Daniel 5, 1 through 4, and 23. Okay, start off with 1, verse 2. Yes, sir. The Lord delivered Jerichim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. He carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put it in the treasure house of his God. Okay, let me stop for just a second while you're looking for the next one. Did you catch that? So, when they went into Babylonian captivity, all these precious vessels got taken with them that they used only for holy things. They got put in the treasury house 
of Nebuchadnezzar and, and other Babylonian kings. Not how this stuff's supposed to be used. Okay, Dan, if you'll keep, pick up the story then in Daniel um, 5, read the first four verses. Okay. And King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine from, with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken for the temple in Jerusalem. So that, uh, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubine might bring from Hang on right there. What were these vessels supposed to be doing? Holy things. Holy, holy. holy things. What did they use them for? To get drunk with. Yeah. This was not about drunkenness. This was about... This was about using something that's supposed to be holy for an illicit purpose. Okay, Dan, did you get through four? No, I got through three. Okay. Why don't you, want you to jump ahead to 23? Uh huh. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Have the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubine drink wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. You cannot see or hear or understand. For you did not honor the God who holds you in his hand, holds hold in your hand your life and all your ways. These items that were supposed to be used for the worship of God alone being used illicitly for, in the worship of, um, of other gods, which you and I know were not gods at all. So Isaiah says, when you come back, bring God's stuff back with him. And if you look at the, the second part of, of the verse 11, he's going to say one other thing. Keep your hands from dirty things. Is that a good paraphrase? How, how does he say it here? Um, uh, touch nothing unclean. Get that? I, I, uh, I did that thing yesterday. I got up and it was overcast and kind of cool and still. And we had planned something else yesterday. And I, the... My pansies are ruined, and I needed to replace all that. I, had, I was out of town last weekend, didn't get to do it last weekend. So I said, dear, why don't we just why don't you let me do that? And, you know. So I bought more stuff than I could plant. <laughs> and by like 3 o'clock, I was just cashed. And I was dirty. And I still got some stuff to plant. I'm going to do that today. <laughs> But I remember thinking the reason I wanted to continue with that project is while I was filthy, and I was filthy, I just wanted to get done. You know, because I knew there was a time coming when I was going to go take a shower, and I wouldn't want to do that after that. Uh, and I literally said to myself, I was, <laughs> I was sitting in the shade on the patio um, uh, drinking some iced tea, thinking, am I going to get back to this? And I remember saying to myself, are you done? 
You know, there are times when God sees things in my life that are going to wreck me. And he says to me, are you done? You done with that? You know that has never worked out for you. Are you done with that? Because it's time to go take a shower and move on. And so he says to them, when you're bringing these good, holy things back, don't touch foul things. Well, um, are you done? Are you done with sin? Jesus paid a high price for your sin. Uh, the book of Hebrews, I just put this reference in there. I'm not going to read it because it, it would start a whole other thing today. But um, I understand it, but I don't have time to tell you what it means. Uh, but if you want to read it, then it'll, you'll say, oh, no wonder he didn't want to deal with that. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that's talked about in there is that when you and I sin, the book of Hebrews says we're putting Jesus back on the cross. And I think Jesus occasionally says to me, are you done? Isn't it time to bring the holy things back? Don't touch the not holy things. Look at verse 12. You remember, um, you remember the Israelites' departure from Egypt? They ate the Passover, the first Passover, standing up. Remember that? Why? Get out of here. Get after it. Get on your horse. Get after it. Okay? Hasty departure. Look at verse 12. No hasty departure here. Fast forward 900 years after that first hasty departure, and he says, I, I love this. It's beautiful. Um, but you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you. I love that. Michael, you said the last part a little bit ago. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. No hasty departure will be necessary. Why? He says, plan carefully. Take your time. You're going to get there. And then he says this. God has got your back. Right there. He'll be your rear guard. Catch that? Now, um, I want to read three verses that are not in the lesson. But... Uh, they're going to introduce a concept. We'll, by the way, we'll be in Isaiah 65 next week. But here's, here's uh, they're going to introduce a concept of the suffering servant. Okay, listen to verse 11, 12, uh, sorry, 13, 14, and 15. Behold, my servant will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up, greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance will be was marred more than any man, and his form more than sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. This is the beginning of this discussion of the suffering servant that's introduced. Um, this relief foreshadows his eternal relief from suffering forever. So, if, if I had to give you an Isaiah 52 thought for today, here's that last statement I'll let you fill in. All right? This week, meet someone exiled spiritually. 
And give them your kind of hope. Give them Isaiah 52 hope. There is no greater calling, I believe, than offering hope to hopeless people. And you may know some. Occasionally, at a restaurant or even in my office, I'll meet somebody who just seems without hope. Offer them hope. You've got it. Isaiah 52, much of this you and I have already experienced. Much of it we're looking forward to in heaven. Is there any greater calling? Teresa, I think about the good and holy work you do. Is there any greater calling than offering hope to people once hopeless and saying, you know what? The day is coming. Hang on. This isn't all there is. This isn't all there's going to be. Take up that calling, will you? To offer hope to the hopeless. Sometimes a smile and an encouraging word from a person who knows Jesus can start something absolutely marvelous. Do it, will you? Go with me to Isaiah 65 next week, okay? We're going to work through this this summer. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.